This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Live from Joe's Mom's basement, it's the Stacking Bitcoin Show. During today's headline, the crazy Bitcoin jumped to 11,000, I mean, 8,000, uh, okay, actually, it's, it's now it's a 10,000, well, it, all right, it's somewhere in there, it's somewhere between 8,000 and 11,000, just, you'll figure it out, and on our letter segment, we're answering a hot listener question, what happens to your Ethereum ripple swirl when you lose your crypto cyber wallet, and bad news, wait, what's that? Wrong script. Who is responsible for this? All right. Let's roll it back, people, from the top. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. On today's show... Yesterday was National Millionaire's Day. There's a holiday we can all get behind. And I'm behind it because I'm not quite yet a millionaire. Well, to help us out, we welcome the author of You Need More Money, Matt Monero. Plus, how about the gig economy, huh? Do people who just work different gigs versus working for the man pay more attention to their money? We'll ask the man from T. Rowe Price, Senior Financial Advisor, Stuart Ritter. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline, answer a letter from the mailbag, and help you make a million on your trivia skills. And now, two guys who still spell skills with an S and not a Z, <laughs> Joe and O G. We're crazy, but we're not that crazy. I like everything that ends in Z. Just end it all in Z? Yes. Petunias with a Z? That's getting crazy. Hey, everybody. Coffees, <laughs> drinks. <laughs> Look at drinks with a Z podcast. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the table from me is that wild and crazy guy, the one and only other guy. Here's we call him OG. Not the fake OG. That's me. Not the fake OG. A lot the, of fake the out there. OG. Man, we got a real show for you today. Matt Monero's on. A real show. Okay. Uh, yeah. Real, real show. Not like those other shows we've done. This is the one we've all been waiting for. Finally. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> Matt, Finally, the real one's coming. Matt Monero's uh, brother-in-law. Well, you know, I'm going to let him tell the story. It's, uh, but, but OG, you probably need more money than you think you have. I think a lot of people think they're doing okay. Deal. And Matt says... 
well, maybe you need to think about that again. So not to scare you too much, but Matt's got a great message. But you know who else has a great message? Lexington Law. Because this episode of Stacky Benjamin is brought to you by Lexington Law. We all deserve a free credit report summary, don't we? For your free credit report summary and credit repair consultation, head to lexingtonlaw.com forward slash SB. And we're also presented by Slack. We use Slack here at Stacking Benjamins and love it. Love Slack. We love Slack. We live on Slack at Stacking Benjamins. If you don't know what Slack is, it's a collaborative hub that lets you organize your team's work into channels where everyone's included relevant information is in one place and new team members can easily get up to speed. Learn more at slack.com. You guys aren't going to give us much slack <laughs> if, <laughs> if we don't get to the show. So let's get this party started, shall we? Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. I forgot to mention last week was uh, Tori Spelling's birthday. This comes to us from cafemom.com. Tori Spelling's net worth, how broke is she really? Have you seen this, all these things about Tori Spelling no. being super broke? No. With so much talk about what, Tori. What else is new? <laughs> That's right. Uh, this is written by Tanvir Pert. With so much talk about Tori Spelling in the headlines and whether or not she's suffering from a mental breakdown or if her marriage to Dean McDermott is in trouble, there's one question people can't help but ask. What the heck's going on with her finances? Speculation that Tory's going broke continues to grow, with many rolling their eyes at the former Beverly Hills 90210 star and the silver spoon she had growing up as Aaron Spelling's daughter. But as with all things, looks just might be deceiving. Wow, another uh, celebrity blew a whole crap load of money. Can't account for it. Looking at you, Johnny Depp. Well, let's find it out. The richest.com estimates her net worth to be around $10 million. And it says her dad, Aaron Spelling, who is a Titan producer in the TV industry, reportedly left behind $600 million after he died. Oof. But contrary to popular assumption, she isn't rolling in the dough. Her mom, Candy Spelling, once opened up about Tori Spelling's finances, revealing to the New York Times that her daughter didn't receive a big inheritance because of her wild spending habits. Tori would close a store and drop fifty to $60,000, the spelling matriarch once revealed. I never did anything like that. She just went crazy. Or that as, sounds crazy. Or as the OG says, cray-cray. Craze. Crazy. Dash Z. That's, 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 what, that's what you do. As a result, Tori only received 800000 from her father's death. Well, there you oh. go. What a kick in the seat. You can't do Dad's it. Dad's worth $600 million and you got a rounding error. Oh, boy. But you can't. That's like the two decimal points. Like when people say, how much is that person worth? $600.8 million. It's like you're the 0.8 part. Oof. But who can who can make it on 800000 bucks? <laughs> I would be so mad at my dad if he was worth $600 million. So I got 800000 I mean, Mr. what happened to the other five hundred and ninety-nine million two hundred thousand? I mean, Mister Money Mustache retired with six hundred thousand, but he had to go live in a woods. For goodness' sake, Tori Spelling is not Mister Money Mustache. She yeah. can't go live in a woods, make her own. Could you see Tori Spelling out making her own furniture? I think that'd be just that's video I want to see. While there's no word on her salary as uh, Donna Martin, the character Donna Martin on Beverly Hills 90210, it's safe to say that money didn't last. Well, some of it must have if she's got 10 million bucks laying around. In 2014, a source told E! News, where I go for all my news. A source. That Tori and Dean had gone through, quote, 18 million since they've been together. $18 million. That year, the Mama Five's money woes came to light during an episode of her True Tory reality show in which Tory admitted she didn't want to adjust her lifestyle to her new financial situation. Why should we have to, Tory said on the show, according to E! News. My dad would have wanted this. Prior to blowing through millions, Tory... Wrong. <laughs> your dad gave you 800 grand, remember? Apparently, your dad didn't want that. Tory Spelling likely saw monetary success, hence the millions available to spend. She authored six books. She took on several made-for-TV movies and other roles, like the revival of Donna Martin in the 90210 reboot, and she started five reality shows with her husband, Dee McDermott. Since then, Tory worked hard to secure her net worth over the next few years, reportedly earning upwards of 200 thousand dollars two hundred thousand dollars apparently last a few obviously we don't know if any of this is true but i think that there's a big point here oh gee 
you have to adapt your finances to your lifestyle, regardless of what your dad might have wanted or might not have wanted. You have to adapt. Well, I think the other thing, too, since we're talking about celebrities, my favorite celebrity stories are the ones where they live on like pittance relative to what they make in the real world. We've talked about Gronkowski living on his advertising earnings, not using any of his NFL paycheck. We've talked about Jay Leno always using the lower of his two jobs, even as much as when he was working as the Tonight Show host, he was making $45 million a year, but he was living on a stand-up comedy money, which also was probably really good. But uh, you have to adapt your lifestyle, absolutely. But I think it starts before then. You have to not get into the bad lifestyle. You know, you have one good year as a bonus. You don't get, don't go spend all that bonus money. You normally make a hundred grand, all of a sudden you get a hundred thousand dollar bonus. Don't build your lifestyle around 200,000 because it is way harder to pull that rain back than it is to simply just not go there in the first place. And there's two main reasons why people adjust the two biggest expenses too quickly, which are your house and your auto, right? I mean, those are the two. Once you get to that bigger lifestyle, with dad, poor dad stuff. Yeah. You get to the bigger lifestyle with either one of those two. It's hard to reel it in. It's incredibly hard to reel it in. In our second headline, think you're up for a pay raise? Joining the gig economy might be a healthy move for your pocketbook. Here joining us to talk about the results of their first ever survey about the gig economy, senior financial planner Stuart Ritter from T. Rowe Price joins us on My Dad Shortwave. How are you, man? I'm great. How are you? Well, I'm fantastic, and I'm so happy that we get to talk to you again. But let's start with definitions, Stuart. The gig economy, what is that exactly? When we went out with our survey, the way we asked it of people was whether they earned any income from independent work. So the traditional job is I go to work for an employer full-time or I go to work for an employer part-time, and that's the only income I get. Folks in the gig economy may be working full-time for an employer, and then they've got a side hustle. Or maybe they're doing part-time work, but it's independent or contract or freelance. Or they could even be retired I've got the air quotes going on, but they're doing something once in a while to earn money because they want to. Any of those folks are participating in the gig economy. You're talking about gig economy and older folks, but I'm thinking that it's probably more millennials participating than older folks in the gig economy. There were a couple of surprises we got in this survey, and that was the first one. The narrative about the gig economy is that it's a bunch of millennials who would rather be working full time and are upset about the fact they can't find a job, so they're working from coffee shop to coffee shop and they don't like it. And the reality is the generation that reported the greatest participation in the gig economy was Gen X. It was those folks that were more into the gig economy than either baby boomers or millennials. Wow. Why Gen X? I mean, it just seems to me that it'd be on one end or the other, right? Either retirees getting back in or it would be millennials deciding that the traditional career path isn't for me. Any idea why it would be Gen X over those two? Yeah. Well, we asked people, what brought you into the gig economy? And we started by saying, was it by choice or was it out of necessity? And then now that you're there or when you made that decision to go in there or forced into it, what were some of the driving factors? And the two big ones were I wanted to supplement my income. And the second one was I wanted more of a work-life balance. And Gen Xers, it was an even split between those two things. So I think mm. for Gen Xers, they're kind of at the point in their career where they're thinking, all right, I, I'm looking to get a little more income at the same time, I'm at the stage of my life where I want a little more work-life balance, and I think the draw of both of those uh, may be what's pulling them in. I was surprised by this number. Uh, 78% of gig workers consider themselves more involved in their personal finances in the gig economy. Yes, definitely more than folks who are in the traditional employment situations. And some of that could be that the gig folks uh, have to think about other things like filing quarterly taxes. And they told us they're more engaged with their accounts. They check them more often. So that kind of engagement has a broad spread in terms of them thinking about other aspects of their financial lives. But if I'm sitting working at a nine to five job, Stuart, and I'm listening to you and I talk and I think, well, okay, if I'm not doing what I'm doing, I'm more involved in my finances. How does this nine to five person replicate those types of results so that they pay attention more? I think there are a couple of things they can do. 
The first is to think about the gig economy differently. Some of them may be thinking, well, that's not for me. It's for those disgruntled millennials. And in reality, baby boomers were the ones who were most positive about being in the gig economy. And again, the positive aspect was across the board for all the age groups. So even if you're a millennial working full time, recognize that the people who are engaged in the gig economy are very positive about it. The second thing you might want to do is dip your toe in the water. Uh, the other thing people will think, is, oh, well, uh, if I'm going to do that, I've got to commit something and it's going to be another 20 hours a week and I have to be somewhere Tuesday night at 730. There's a lot of flexibility available now. So if you're in a traditional job, start thinking more positively about the gig economy and then see if there might be something that gives you the opportunity to try it out. I think this is also exciting for people that have debt, right? If I've got debt and I've got a few extra hours with the gig economy growing, it's not just people in that workspace, Stuart. It also means that there's more opportunities out there for people, obviously, why there's more people in the space. Absolutely. And supplementing income was the number one reason millennials cited for getting into the gig economy. For boomers, it was more work-life balance. And as I said, Gen Xers, it's a split between the yeah. two. So if you're interested in getting ahead financially, this might be an opportunity to do so. And that allows you to apply that improved financial situation to a variety of areas. So one of the things folks in the gig economy may be paying more attention to is making sure they're saving for retirement, because sometimes that can happen as part of the, quote, package. If you're in a traditional job, if you're going into the gig economy, here's an opportunity to either generate more money for retirement or gives you the opportunity to make sure you're paying attention to that aspect of your finances. If people want to find out more and they want to check out the survey themselves, how do they do that? Uh, they can come to the tiroprice.com website and we've got all kinds of resources to help them out. Awesome. And then I would be remiss if, you know, having the T. Rowe Price guy on the phone, I don't ask about this volatility lately, Stuart. How are you guys coaching people through or helping people cope with the volatility of this, uh, you know, much more violent market than we had last year? Here's one way to think about it. If you're flying from New York to San Diego, you look at the weather at San Diego and you pack for San Diego, which is going to be a bathing suit and sunscreen. If your plane makes a couple of stops along the way and as part of that part of the trip, it starts getting bumpy and uncomfortable and cold and rainy. At one of those stops, you don't get off the plane and say, oh, I need to completely repack my suitcase because that's not where your final destination is. You're not getting off the plane until you get to San Diego. And that's how to think about what's going on in the market. If you're saving for retirement, which may be 10, 20, 30 years away, and then even when you get there, it's 10, 20, 30 years in retirement, you're not getting off the plane yet with the money you're saving for retirement. So yeah, it's bumpy. It can feel uncomfortable. But stocks are, are investments designed for the long term. And since you're not getting off the plane, it may not be a good idea to repack your suitcase. Stuart Ritter, believe it or not, always with the perfect analogy. Thanks a ton for hanging out with us for a few minutes, man. Hey, thanks for having me back on. Matt Monero, upstairs talking to Mamo G. If you don't know Matt, you're about to have some fun with him because he speaks to audiences around the country. He also is the host of the You Need More Money podcast, which you is- You need more money. You need more money. He's a serial entrepreneur, the CEO of four companies, including Commercial Fleet Financing, which made the Inc. 500 slash 5,000 list of America's fastest growing companies four years in a row, most recently this last year, 2017. He is just up the road from us in Dallas, Texas, but right now he's in Texarkana, baby. So here he comes. Matt Monero coming down to the basement. Matt, have a seat, man. How are you? I'm so excited to be here, my friend. I'm doing great. I am very happy that you're here to tell your story, and I absolutely love the book. You need more money. I'm digging into the podcast. I got to tell you that before we start, though. The podcast is uh, slightly inspirational. <laughs> I hope so. Inspirational, maniacal, whatever you want to call it. Right. <laughs> but let's start off because this actually, you know, like a lot of things, things didn't start out great for you and your family. You, Your brother-in-law had a big problem, which really led you to the whole, you need more money. Do you mind telling us that story? Yeah. I mean, the genesis of my book, You Need More Money, is my brother-in-law's story. My brother-in-law 
and look, I, I've been married uh, 20 years, been with my wife 22, and we love each other. I know that. But I know my wife loved her brother more than she loves me. You could not have picked a worse person to have this happen to than my wife's only brother, John. And he was diagnosed at 46 with stage four cancer. He unfortunately died almost one year to the day, and he left a wife and four children with no health insurance, no life insurance, and 100 bucks in the bank. And that story became the genesis of you need more money. It was so tragic for our family to watch that happen that I just had to write about it. And I wrote a little story about it. It got picked up by a group in New York who ended up taking it to Penguin and Penguin bought the rights and I ended up writing a book about it. And, but, uh, but, and the big thing, Matt, was was that, I mean, you talk about love but and he clearly loved his family, but you found out that he didn't really leave them with any money. No, he didn't. And John used to, we used to talk about money. John worked for me twice in our, you know, 20 years, to, 22 years together. Uh, by the way, on a side note, in 22 years of being in my brother-in-law's presence and vice versa, we never had one coarse word together ever, not once. We had, we had a great brother-in-law to brother-in-law relationship. And he used to always tell me, I got time. I know I'm financially behind, but I got time. I can make up for it. I can make up for it. I can make up for it. And he goes to the doctor to get a shot because he wasn't feeling well and he gets diagnosed with stage four cancer and his earning capabilities shut down that day. And my wife and I had to cover all of their bills with pleasure, by the way. We never questioned for a second that we would remove the, the financial burdens and try to get him better, but it didn't work. And so without even life insurance, he left a wife and four children with nothing, not unlike millions of people in America that I have since come to realize are in the exact same spot. Well, you said in your book that you were kind of in that spot at one point. It made you kind of reflect that you weren't being honest about your money. Of course. I mean, I think my, my, look, my, my I mean, I picked one of the three worst topics to write about. Right. I mean, you know, you've got politics, religion and money. And I chose to write about money. And no wonder so many people tell me to buzz off on Facebook and all that <laughs> stuff. Right. But the reality is people are afraid to talk about money, man. Nobody knows really how to figure it out. And I tried to write a book that told my story of how I went from nothing into something financially. And then along the way, what were the questions that I kept asking? What do people do for a living? How much money do I need? When can I actually invest? When am I out of broke and actually doing okay? I think no one knows those answers. And so I tried to write them down in a book and tell people exactly how much money they need and, and milestones that they can achieve. And then the second part of the book is this roadmap of how I did it and I believe if anybody wants to follow it, they can have financial success too. Well, let's dig into it a little bit, Matt, because I mean, your big premise, and you talk about this on your podcast also, people have this false positive, like you're talking about. We think we have time. We think everything's going to be okay. And yet we're not nearly as okay as we think we are. For sure. We think that we're a dominator in the marketplace. We think that we have no competition. We think that China is, is a non-issue. We think that regulation can't affect us, that two planes hitting skyscrapers won't affect our business, and that just because our bills don't come on pink slips anymore that we actually got some money. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have to operate in fear because all of those things can affect us, not even mentioning health, right? Health can fire up when we least expect it. And we have to be more prepared than we are. So false positive in my definition is that we believe we are doing better than we actually are. And then in the book, I try to go in and explain ratios and examples and formulas of how a person can test it, their, their litmus test, their false positive test. But in general, most people believe they are doing better financially than they really are because the bills just don't come on pink slips. They can go to Disney World. They can get approved for a decent car or a decent house, and they can buy a $2,000 purse to impress their friends and neighbors. And it doesn't mean anything compared to financial security. I love this idea that you have about 1x, 3x, 5x, and 10x ratios going from broke to accumulation to rich. Explain that to everybody, because this is a pretty powerful concept. Right. How do we know where we're supposed to be? And are we doing okay? Are we on track? Or are we off track? So I created the 1, 3, 5, 10 formula. It's so simple and easy. Anybody can do it. So we're looking at assets over liabilities, what we own over what we owe. And in your 20s, my argument is you should have one times your annual salary as your net worth. If we make 50 grand a year, we should have $50,000 net worth. That can come from equity in a house, 401k, stocks, whatever. 
In your 30s, we have to move to a 3x because it starts to get more severe because we need more money the older we get. In our 30s, we need 3x. So if we're making 100 grand, we need to have a net worth of 300,000. In our 40s, we go to 5x. So if I'm now in my 40s and I'm making 200 grand, I need five times that. In my 40s, I need a net worth of a million bucks. And in my 50s, I need 10 times. So if I'm making 200 grand a year and I'm in my 50s, I need a $2 million net worth. Those are rough numbers that tell someone whether they're on track to even be able to uh, retire in some form of fashion and have a semblance of their existing life. And when you apply those numbers, my friend, most people are way behind. Well, that's what I was going to say was that a lot of people had that false positive, felt like they were doing behind. Now they hear you sitting across the card table from me, giving them the number. And now they go, oh, crap. Now I'm demotivated because I'm so far behind. What's my next step if I'm way behind? <laughs> yeah, but I hope it doesn't demotivate people. <laughs> it's so funny you say that because I, I never looked at it like that. It looked at, to me, it would be like motivating to me to be like, oh, man, I got to get on the stick. Let me make it. I never thought it would bump somebody out and say, screw it. I'm done, man. <laughs> I'm just going to go well, drink. Listen, that's not a bad outcome. I mean, go drive a truck for six months and surf for six months. I'm down with that. Yeah. I mean, that to me is good. But the reality is what do people got to do, man? They got to first off focus on exactly where they are. They need to get an understanding of where they are. The second thing they got to do is they've got to determine, are they in the right platform? And so what do I mean by platform? People call it industry, career path, space, doing what you're doing. Do you have the ability to make up the financial gap or to get on track and live your lifestyle by design? That is a really important thing because most people are in businesses or industries that have no chance of providing them the income that they dream of. And so how do you know whether you're in the right platform? You must have someone in that platform who is earning what you want to earn and then you have to tuck in nice and close to them and follow their lead. If you don't have that person, it's the wrong platform. And I think when you test a platform like that, many people will say, wow, I thought that guy was untouchable. So let me go partner up and buddy up with that guy. How does it start? Like in my office, you take a guy out for a $5 foot long Subway sandwich shop and he'll tell you all the secrets on how you get, you know, half a million or whatever the guys are making. But most people, my friend, are in businesses or industries where they were promised all this stuff by someone who isn't making it. There isn't someone who ever achieved it in their platform. And so they take the job on false promises and they never end up doing it. So we've got to reevaluate the platform. Is there someone in the platform actually earning what you need to earn? And if not, you got to change your platform. I love you got that. to leave. Yeah, well, and I love that idea a lot because there were times when I was a financial planner, Matt, that we would go through everybody's numbers, right? And you talk about going through your numbers, cutting unnecessary expenses, doing things like that at the beginning to get into the accumulation stage, to go from broke to accumulation. We would do that. And yet, and you've seen this before, there still wasn't enough money. I mean, sometimes it just is an income problem. It is an income problem. It's rarely an expense problem, to tell you the truth, because, uh, you know, I have a friend just on a very quick story. I have a friend who just bought a, a brand new Acura NSX. It's like a $140,000 vehicle. Sweet. He walked in, he walked into the dealership. He said, I'll take that car right now and I don't want $1 off it. Don't, I'm not going to negotiate one ounce with you. I want that and I'm going to pay full price for it. And everyone was in shock. He said, there's only one thing I need you to do. I have to meet the owner of the dealership. And they're like, of course, come back tomorrow. We'll have him here. The owner of the dealership's there tomorrow. My buddy walks in, says, I'm buying that car right now. I'm paying full price. He says, but I'd like to talk to you about the air conditioning contract at this dealership. See, I, I'm concerned about Texas heat and I want to make sure that, you know, there's no problems here. So I'd like to put you on a maintenance contract. The, guy, the owner of the dealership said, do it for all eight of my dealers. My dealerships and my buddy said, I didn't buy that NSX. The dealership bought me that right. NSX. <laughs> wow. Completely different way of looking at things. And that's what people have to do when it comes time to figure out how do we make up the gap? We got to look at the gap differently. Well, when you say look at the gap too, what I like that you stress a lot is find a rich person. You talk about the subway footlong sub, but find a rich person. Tell me a story about you finding a rich person. I think you, you did when you started your business, didn't you? Well, it was later on. I mean, the reality was I thought I had, to, like most small business owners, I thought I had to do it all myself. And I struggled for a decade plus trying to figure it out. That's not true. So my argument in the book is go hook up with some network of people. And I, I, I walk the reader through the exact story and process that I took. I made a decision to improve my network. I go through the exact steps of how I did it. 
and then what I was able to get from it. And what I was able to get from it was insight, was peace, was opportunities, was introductions that never existed for me until I decided to get serious about building a world-class network. I mean, you know, listen, uh, Warren Buffett says, show me your five heroes and I'll show you how your life turns out. I never had any of those heroes in my life, man. So people need to actually begin to build a life with some people they love and respect and have heroes and mentors. And most small business owners are terrified of that, my friend, because we're afraid our business is too small. We don't have enough money. They're not going to look at us as important. And so we just stay in this little isolated cocoon called entrepreneurship and small business ownership. And it's a nightmare for most of us. But, but the key is, and you also emphasize this, you don't have to be a business owner, right? Even to be out building your network or building your net worth. Like there's this big thing out there that to be rich, you have to be an entrepreneur. And you say that's not true. I argue completely against that. I actually believe most people should not be in business for themselves. And my argument is this, the number two person at Facebook that no one's ever heard of is still worth a billion bucks, right? We don't have to go at it with our name as CEO or president. My buddy, uh, RJ Grimshaw, talks about it as entrepreneurship, the ability to have an entrepreneurial spirit working right. underneath the umbrella of a big company. And after 23 years of business for myself, I love that idea. I do too. I I just didn't have it. It didn't present itself to me. So I had to go do it. But I have lots of entrepreneurs inside of my business today. And I think, listen, if you're ever waiting for your boss to take control of your career, you're doing it wrong. Own it no matter what you do. You talk about people have to get moving, but then you talk about risk. Risk is only connected to fear. There is very little risk in a lot of things that very wealthy people do because they've done the research and analysis. You have to ask yourself a question. And I say this all the time in my business. Why does one trucking company have one truck and J.B. Hunt has 10,000 trucks, right? It's the same industry. It's the same revenue per mile. It's the same doggone truck. Why does he have 10,000 and you only have one? And it's the, it comes down to the research and analysis and how that connects to fear. J.B. Hunt said, there is less fear for me having 10,000 trucks than one. One truck, I'd be terrified. 10,000 trucks that I can make one penny per mile profit sounds a lot better to me than one truck where I've got to drive. So the perception of risk is connected to research and analysis. Why else, my friend, can one person buy one flip house and some people can buy hundreds of flip houses? There's no risk in it because they've done the research and analysis. They know the market. They know the comps. They have the workers that can do the repairs. They know what money to put into it, what money not to put into it. And they can just lock and load over and over and over and over. There's no risk in that for them. But there's terrible risk by the dreamer who constantly says, you know, well, one day we'll buy that, you know, that rental house and we'll, we'll make 250 bucks a month and positive cash flow on it. And somebody else will pay our mortgage. My response to that is it's only 250 a month, man. It doesn't help you. You need to buy at least 10 before it even comes close to moving the needle and making up the gap. Diversification for the win. The problem, my friend, that so many of us have, myself included for many years, is we are hill climbers. We will cross the goal line. We will climb the hill. We will achieve. But yet we pick these very small hills to climb. And when we get to the hill, to the top, we look back and we're like, man, that's all there was. I should have climbed a higher hill. The book is You Need More Money, Wake Up and Solve Your Financial Problems Once and For All. Where do they get it, Matt? Anywhere. Amazon, Barnes, all Barnes and Nobles across the country, Target, Walmart. It's anywhere books are sold and uh, it's everywhere. Talk to people. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the podcast. Tell everybody about the podcast. It's called the You Need More Money podcast. Uh, it's <laughs> available anywhere you get your podcast from. Anyone can follow me on social at, at Matt Monero. And I'm grateful for being on. And I think the book's going to help a lot of people it's already doing that. I mean, I'm already getting a lot of emails from people saying that, you know, it woke them up. They bought term life insurance. Look, let's just look at some of my brother-in-law story for a second. And I'm crazy about my brother-in-law. And I was. But if my brother-in-law spent 50 bucks a month to buy it, he could have bought a $100,000 term life insurance policy for 50 bucks a month. And it would have changed the entire outcome forever for his family. 50 bucks a month. You want to spend a hundred, you could get 250,000 in term life. Now I'm not a life insurance sales guy. I'm just saying, if you have no money, you can find $50 a month to take care of that burden upon your death. And you've just leveraged insurance to fix your financial shortcoming. That's it. 
Just that one move can change your entire outcome if something was to happen to you. Hey there, trivia nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And you know, something makes me think I need more money. Not, not sure how that thought jumped into my noggin, but the realization I needed more money gave me a huge idea. Check this out. I've decided to go into this new business called Selling Plasma. I've gone online and down at the dump, there's a bunch of plasma TVs and baby, I intend to sell every last one of them. I'm going to be so rich. I'm going to call up Gertrude and we're going to be headed to the dump with the old El Camino. But first, I'm going to deliver the best part of the show. That's right, your trivia. Let's stick with the millionaire theme, shall we? When asked about his 2008 hit movie, Slumdog Millionaire, creator Danny Boyle was told by some that the word slumdog sounded racist. He explained that nothing could be further from the truth because it was a mashup of what two words. I'll be back with the answer in just a moment. Here at Stacky Benjamins, we use Slack. And if you're not using Slack, you might be a little like me before I started using Slack. I thought, why do I need to use this thing? Well, Slack connects the tools and services you need in one place. It allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video, or voice calls. I had all this stuff, by the way. I had the group file sharing, I had searchable archives, but you know what? I didn't have it all in one place. And that essentially, in just a few words, is the miracle. (laughs) And it is a miracle of Slack. No more searching through emails for that one follow-up or searching through multiple systems to find what you're looking for. No more switching across tons of tabs and platforms to keep updated with work. It features drag and drop sharing that works with all the apps you already use like Salesforce, Zendesk, and Google Drive, plus tailor Slack to your work with more than a thousand apps. We use a peer in right from Slack, Screen Hero. We, we use a ton of stuff all right inside this one spot. It works everywhere that you go with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly. You can always pick up where you left off, no matter where you are. Slack, where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's slack.com. We're also excited that Lexington Law supports Stacky Benjamins. We've teamed up with Lexington Law, and they're offering everybody a free credit report summary and credit repair consultation. I read this number, and I think it's attributed to ABC News. Like 90% of credit reports have an error in them, 90%. But whether yours has an error or not, maybe you need credit repair. Maybe you need credit help. Who does Lexington Law help? Well, I'll tell you who. If you're looking for a home mortgage, that's one. People use Lexington Law to get the credit that they deserve. Lexington Law has a long-standing relationship with all three of the major credit bureaus and that deep expertise in knowing how getting errors removed works enables the team to communicate more routinely and effectively for their clients. Lexington Law tackles correcting errors on credit reports through three levels of credit repair to ensure each client's needs are met. That's Lexington Law for credit repair and peace of mind tomorrow for a free credit report summary and a credit repair consultation, go to lexingtonlaw.com forward slash SB. That's lexingtonlaw.com forward slash SB. Hey there, trivia fans. I have good news and bad news. Let's start with the bad news. Apparently, these plasma buyers want my blood. What kind of weirdness is that? But on the good news side, uh, I've got a great deal for you on some gently used plasma televisions. I'll share the details if you call me. But for now, let's tackle your trivia. Here was the question. When asked about his hit 2008 movie Slumdog Millionaire, creator Danny Boyle said the word slumdog was a mashup of what two words? If you said slumdog is a mashup of slum dweller and underdog, you'd be spot on and you'd win. Are you sitting down? A gently used plasma TV. Congratulations. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Please you know, come on over and pick it up. 
really. Come on now, right? Get get over here right now, because I've got like 47 of these bad boys in Joe's mom's driveway. She ain't happy. Big thanks to Matt for coming down and talking with us today. You know, it's true, OG. A lot of people just feel like because these long-term goals are so far away, like not much I got to do about them today. I'll worry about those later, right? I think we get into this sequencing of goals where we just look at the one that's closest and think, well, I got this stuff that's close now. I'll focus on that. Not really realizing that that stuff that's far away, if we let compounding interest take over, that'll take care of it all. Looking at you, college tuition for OG's kids. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, they'll be kids forever. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline, OG, and tackle some of life's, or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they're disrupting the life insurance industry by focusing on those two things that you value more than anything else. More money and cheese. Cheeses with a Z. (laughs) and that's why i don't know what the hell that means how about your family and your time can you say your family and your time come on your your family and your time maybe maybe next week that's why they created a simple way to buy affordable and dependable term life insurance online head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash haven life now to get a free estimate for coverage and to learn about life insurance the modern way and man oh man is it the modern way i love taking care of that quickly. And that's what Haven Life is great at. Today, calling into the Haven Lifeline is our friend, Arthur. Say hi, Arthur. Hello. My name is Arthur. This question is on behalf of my brother, Tommy. Tommy and the family have recently come into a large sum of money. But we are concerned that those in power in England make it wind of our windfall, I guess you would say. So my question is, what is uh, the best way to hide this money? That's my question, lads. Good day. Thanks for, thanks for the question, Arthur. Oh my goodness. Uh, Arthur's got it. So how do you hide money from the British government when you have a windfall, OG? <laughs> well, I'm not sure how to hide it from the British government, nor am I sure how to hide it from the United States government, nor any government for that matter. I once had a um, estate planning attorney refer me to a family who... This was their story anyway. I didn't get much past the first 20 minutes of the meeting. But their story was uh, great-grandpa or grandpa uh, stashed away some some Benjamins back in uh, World War II when he was serving in Germany and uh, happened to put it in certain Swiss banks somewhere. And uh, now the G was looking at them. So they wanted to get that money back to the States. I remember when that happened, yeah. And uh, without any fanfare. When I inquired as to how much it was, it, I don't remember, but it was in the million range, million, million two, something like that, just sitting in a safety deposit box. And they're basically they're they knew the gig was up right when the IRS started requiring foreign uh, account disclosure. And so they figured, hey, we'll just repatriate this money by bringing it back in a suitcase. Yeah, you can't do that. Here's the problem with trying to hide money from Uncle Sugar. No matter how you got it, you still have to claim it as income. It's a bigger crime to lie about your income received than it is to write on your tax return, other income, nefarious deeds, one million. (laughs) Bank heist, 1.2 million. That's how they got Al Capone. So uh, they got him on the tax evasion, right? Not on the gangster in or the murders. So I would tell your brother Tommy and, uh, and the fam to, uh, you know, maybe just come clean. Maybe get that legal side of the business moving faster. Yeah. If you dug up a shoebox with some money in it, so be it. So it reminds me of that uh, Simpsons episode where uh, where Lou and the gang are they got the carpet rolled up and it looks like a body and they're about to dump it in the lake. And Chief Wiggum goes, hey, guys, the sign right there says no dumping. And Lou says, uh, uh, 
okay, chief, I guess I'll take my yard trimmings elsewhere. <laughs> so then the other police officer says, chief, that looked like he's trying to ditch your body. And, the, and Wiggum says, that's what I thought too at first. But then when he said yard trimmings, <laughs> I knew, I, you need to listen to all the clues. Anyways. And by the way, for uh, those of you uh, who have no idea what the heck was going on there, that was a spot on, by the way. Congratulations to whoever sent that in. That was a spot on. Pete, I think his name was. Wasn't that his name? No, no, no. I'm saying that that is a spot on imitation of Arthur from Peaky Blinders. Uh, from, that wasn't the real guy. From he said it was. Favorite, it probably is. If 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 he teleported from the 1930s, you're good. Yeah, he is. He's he's great. But and Tommy is the head of the Peaky Blinders gang. So just if you're not watching Peaky Blinders, oh man, and Arthur okay. is. Uh, yeah, Arthur spends most of his money on um, on uh, some some powder that he. Uh, if you know what I'm talking about, sugar. Yes. Yes. So, uh, so great stuff though. Powdered sugar. Fantastic. And, uh, sorry, you got to hide that money, Arthur. And, uh, good luck, Arthur. Hope you're back for season five. Cause I thought season four was fantastic. Season three, <laughs> maybe not so much, Arthur. Season four. Amazing. We know. Okay. We also get letters down here in the basement and this one comes to us from Daniel. I don't know if it's from Daniel or not after that one. Is that really from Arthur? I don't think Seemed so. Seemed like it. That's what he says. Uh, Daniel says, hey, Joe and OG, my fiance and I are 27 and 28. We're in the middle of reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Oh, that's cool. Talk about romance. Light a candle, some wine, a little Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Bear- Maybe we could have Robert read it to you. We want to begin building our asset column and think rental properties are a great opportunity for us. However, we're not sure we have enough cash on hand to get into rental properties within the next two years. We have 120000 in retirement accounts. One 401k is currently maxed out. 60000 in debt between two cars and student loans. 1400 in an M1 investment account and live in an apartment rental. High dividend funds look like a great way to get started building income generating assets. Does this mean we invest in a single fund or do we diversify across multiple funds? Do we invest a large chunk of cash or use dollar cost averaging? As always, I'm sure I'll, I'll learn nothing from your response. Maybe Doug should weigh in too. I doubt it, Daniel. And P.S. How does OG's voice not sound muffled with a bag over his head? That is the magic of podcasting right there. Mm-hmm. Technology at its finest. It's, it is, it's called a lapel mic. It's, yeah, it's, I was going to say it's hard every time wiring up that microphone inside the bag. Well, I've got that big hole cut out where my mouth goes. And believe me, if you haven't listened to this, if you haven't listened to the show that much, it's a huge hole. Well, you threw out a lot of things there. He's, he starts off with uh, rental property. What next do you thing rental you know, properties? What do you think on, of dividend stocks? We got all this debt. <laughs> Squirrel! <laughs> Hello, my name is Doug. Squirrel! I think there's two ways to handle this, but go ahead and uh, attack it, OG. Uh, yeah, so so not a big fan of the debt, right? It's consumer debt, student loans, cars, blech. So we want to really put a plan together to get that knocked out as quickly as possible. And that's a guaranteed. Sure we got a cash reserve. That's a guaranteed return, knocking out that debt. Yeah, yeah, sure is. Got to make sure our cash reserve is good, so we're not going to invade our cash reserve for investing purposes. Sounds sexy. Everybody wants to do it because I'm only getting 1.5% of my savings account. I understand, but- These accounts are there for a reason, for emergencies. You will have one eventually. Well, as far as investing goes in terms of dividend stocks, really, it's all return, right? I mean, dividend payers, capital appreciation, all dividends are are a company's excess profits that they decide can't be invested adequately into the company and generating enough return. So they decide to give that to the shareholders in that capacity, I like dividends just as much as the next guy, but but generally speaking, dividends are just another form of return. It doesn't much matter how it comes, frankly. And as far as diversification goes, of course you should diversify. Now, do you need 42 different investment funds? Probably not. A generic S&P 500 fund will do just fine. For the time being, if you want to get frisky after that, maybe you can add an international fund, maybe add a small company fund, maybe add a merging market fund. Bada boom, bada bing. Four funds. Pretty well diversified. You got probably 8,000 different positions between all those things. You're good. On the rental property front, I think you answered your own question. I don't think we have enough cash to do it, right? You got all this other stuff going on. You got this debt. Uh, You don't have an investment portfolio outside of that. And what's going to happen? You're going to go to the mortgage company asking for a loan, and they're going to look at your your own balance sheet and say, wait a second. Uh, I don't think that we're too excited about lending you a whole bunch of money 
based on how things look right now. So you want to work on building that other side of the balance sheet, like you said, and then from a diversification standpoint, say, okay, I'm going to peel a little bit out of my equity investing and use that to buy some rental properties, if that's what you want to do later. I'm going to get a little controversial here, OG. I love it. I think there's- You'd be wrong, but you can be as controversial as you want. Uh, well, I think there's there's two different things. When you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you look at what he talks about there. For those of you that don't know what type of investments Robert Kiyosaki talks about, he talks about flipping properties, not rental real estate. And he also talks about small cap stocks, not dividend stocks. So the two things that Daniel's talking about- are already far more conservative than what Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter talk about in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Now, here's the thing. The reason for that is because those two asset classes that Robert Kiyosaki and Sharon Lecter are talking about are get-rich asset classes. They're a quicker way to wealth. They're also a quicker way to the poorhouse. So when you look at the stuff that Robert Kiyosaki talks about, diversification makes no sense in a Robert Kiyosaki universe, because if your goal is to become really wealthy off of your investment, diversification lowers your chance of doing that. What it does, though, is it also makes sure you're not going to go broke, right? So when you're trying to get rich off of investments, diversify less. When you're trying to stay rich, diversify more, and then I think you go from there. So, you know, when I when I think about dividend payer stocks, we're talking about large company stocks. I also agree you don't need five bajillion of them to start. I think based on dividend stocks that aren't going to be in a tax shelter and all those dividends are going to get taxed versus paying off the debt. If it's me, I'm probably paying off the debt because your your risk premium, the the amount of extra return you're going to get off a dividend payer is not likely to be enough to justify the risk that you're taking there. But if he's really talking about Kiyosaki stuff, got to be way more aggressive than what he's talking about there and realize it's dangerous, right? I mean, Kiyosaki doesn't really present it as dangerous. That stuff can be pretty dangerous, but there's no way to get wealthy off of stocks without under diversifying your portfolio and, uh, and going strong. I mean, you look at the difference between what Dave Ramsey says to do and what Dave Ramsey did to become wealthy. Dave Ramsey's advice, I think, is very conservative and kind of on the head. Pay down your debt, live a cash-only lifestyle, and invest in mutual funds that are widely diversified. What Dave Ramsey did to become wealthy was started a business that rocked. So, yep. so it depends on what your goal is, Daniel. But, Say not, that wasn't controversial. What are you talking about? Well, I just... Are you going to tell him to like, get the house, leverage it to the hilt. I guess what I didn't want to do is have Daniel think I'm telling him to buy small cap stocks and flip property. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just saying that his advice is about halfway to Kiyosaki. And if I did tell him to do that, I think it's responsible to tell him what risk there is involved doing that. Uh, But does that mean he shouldn't do it? No, maybe he should do it. OG. I mean, if he's going to go for it, why wouldn't he go for it? Why dividend payers versus small caps if that's, if that's you know, the train that he's on? I like small caps. But realize that you're on a roller coaster. Demon drop. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the letter, Daniel. If you've got a note for the show, whether your name is Arthur or Daniel, head to stackybenjamins.com and you'll find at the top of the page a little link that says questions for the show. Click there. Uh, and Arthur is taking home. I'm sure Arthur's going to love this for the whole gang. His greatest money show on earth t-shirt, OG. Arthur, I'm sure, is going to show Tommy that, and he's going to want one too, and all the guys. Good stuff. Hey, thanks also to everybody who's left a review of this year podcast. I'm, I'm embarrassed because I have no idea where we're at on talking about people that have reviewed the show. But I do know that this one is headed to Mom's Refrigerator. This review's from JLA Man. 2010 prolific and great content five stars i listen on two times speed to my podcast since there's so much great content out there but this one is one of the few shows that gets single speed so i can savor every second (laughs) keep up the good work guys and hope to make it on as a guest someday well jla man thanks a lot for the for the review And that one, as I mentioned, is headed to mom's refrigerator. If you're somebody who's looking to get your financial house in order, we've got this one last thing. 
OG's taking clients. So head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash letter O, letter G, and start your summer off with a better financial plan. All right, that's going to do it for today. Doug, what should we have learned today, man? What should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Matt Monero. Protecting your family isn't expensive. Take care of them by saving more money and investing in the right amount of insurance. Second, take some advice from Stuart Ritter from T. Rowe Price. Whether you're a part of the gig economy or not, it's easy to plug in and take a few minutes and check out your funds. Do it now! But the big lesson? When you're arguing with a guy at the plasma selling place about your plasma televisions, don't brag that you'll sell double the amount of plasma as everyone else. The end result is not at all what you'd hope for. It gets kind of ugly. Trust me on this one. Special thanks to senior financial advisor Stuart Ritter from T. Rowe Price for joining us. You'll find more on the Gig Economy Survey and lots of other financial planning tools at trowprice.com. Thanks to Matt Monero for joining us. You'll find You Need More Money wherever books are sold, and you'll find his You Need More Money podcast wherever you're listening to this show. Hey, Matt, I actually need more money. Can you just tell me where I can go ahead and find that? This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcast may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Big thanks to Joe's mom for agreeing to take two of these plasma televisions off my hand. I'm fairly sure I know what Joe and OG are getting his birthday gifts, and man, it's it's they're not gonna like it. I just finished season four of Chef's Table. Speaking of shows, by the way, I finished season four of Peaky Blinders. Amazing. Another great, great, great season of Peaky Blinders. So if you're into The Sopranos meets 1930s England, can't recommend Peaky Blinders enough. Richie, our producer, has all of his friends watching OG. I'm uh, elbow deep in television programs right now, so I don't think I can add another one, but uh, maybe later this summer I'll try but to Chef's Table, have you watched them? I, it's, it's funny. I watched the first one, the candy one. I got done with, with episode four, and then the thing starts, it takes me back to episode one of season one. I'm like, what the hell's going on? I want episode five of season four, dumb Netflix. And so I go back into Netflix, and I click what looks like episode five, and it takes me to... Season three, episode one. I'm like, I want season five. Episode five. I want I want episode five of season four. So I go to click back in again, and season four only has four episodes. How sad. But I think it's because it's pastry that it's so hard for them to uh Mm -hmm. to make people there none of those four are bad. All four have have distinct lessons. I like how the woman in episode one kind of learned to go on her own you know, was kind of pushed into owning her own business. I like that. And really she was good at the book. So for a while she was managing the books, but I think that gave her a leg up in owning her business. Episode two was a gelato guy in uh, Sicily and Mm -hmm. a great episode about 
paying attention to your roots and your training. And then once you make it to master level, kind of paying homage to that, no matter what, no matter what his audience thinks, paying homage to the people that came before him. And I thought that was cool. In episode three, it's the youngest brother of these three brothers that run a Michelin three-star restaurant. By the way, three stars in America sounds like crap, right? Yeah. (laughs) Three-star Michelin is as high as it gets. If you get one, you're one of the top in the world. If you just have one star, you're phenomenal. You have two, you're mind-blowing. You have three, you're the best of the best of the best. And so these three brothers own this restaurant. And the third brother kind of was a was just a partier doing nothing and he, he gets his act together and becomes this great part of uh, this three Michelin star restaurant. And, it, and that, that might be my favorite one. And then the fourth episode is about an American guy who fails in New York and then he succeeds in New York, but kind of gets a big head because of all of his great press and uh, realizes it's not about him and it's not about fame. It's about the food and then redoubles himself, moves to Bali just to get away from New York. He's like, I can't, I couldn't do it in New York too much, you know, too much attention on me and on press and on Mm -hmm. parties and on all this stuff. So love all four of those episodes. Um, Okay. Yeah. Good stuff. What are you watching? I got through the first one. I am uh, midway through binge watching, kind of let, let off the gas a little bit on it, but uh, binge watching Homeland. Oh, that's right. Uh, You were telling me about that. So I'm, so I'm on season four, middle of the, Middle of the season. I haven't I started, but I think that would be five, right six, up seven. right up my alley. I think I'd love it. Yeah, my only complaint is is that um, it does seem like they take the storyline and tweak it and go, and here's a new season, and and there's a really big thing that happened at the end of season three that they've pretty much just kind of let go. It seems like it should fold itself in. Maybe it'll reappear. You know. But the whole premise of season three culminated in this final thing, you know, that happened. It's hard to say without giving it away. But this whole thing happens in season three. And uh, it seems like a pretty important component to the storyline. And it doesn't actually ever come up again, at least so far. So I bet they'll circle around to it. But sometimes yeah, it could take, you know, a season or two to kind of to come back in. So anyway, what's that, what's, uh, what's that show that you really liked about L.A. to Vegas about the flight? Oh yeah, that's so funny. My friend Mike really liked that. Also, there's an episode where she like decides to host a dinner party. I, I, uh, Ronnie, I, I, I just got done with the birthday party one. The kid needs oh, a, the, 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 the guy needs the birthday yeah. party for his kid, it's and so the do it at Grapefruits. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a uh, strip club. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, Ronnie wants to uh, host a dinner party, so uh, so she goes in the kitchen, and one of her colleagues follows her. And she's like, okay, let's get this dinner served. And she opens the refrigerator and gets out the blue apron box. <laughs> and he's like, for like for two. Yeah. Well, and he goes, this ought to be fun. And he just kind of stands there. She opens it up and she goes, wait, you have to cook this. <laughs> you know, I thought it was funny and you and Mike both loved it. I didn't think it was nearly as funny as I, I guess I went in with expectations too high. Because it is, you don't think it's like kind of one line, one line, one line, one line, one line, boom, 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 boom. I do, and I find myself chuckling through it, and it's completely disposable. Oh yeah. So I couldn't remember a single episode right now if you told me. No, maybe to. maybe it's well. I tried to have you remember that one. It took you forever to remember what that was. But the uh, it reminds me of Flight of the Concords, which huh. Cheryl sat through a Flight of the Concords with Nick and I, my son, and she, like three quarters of the way through the episode, stood up and said, this is the dumbest show I've ever seen. And he and I look at her like, yeah, of course. Like, of course. <laughs> yeah. I guess I went in maybe expecting like Arrested Development or something with some... Speaking of, I just got an alert on my phone. Season five comes out one week on Netflix. They're going to do another one. Season five, yeah. Of? The Bluth family, dude. It's yeah. like now they're all grown up. They yeah. got everybody back. Yeah, but I saw the 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 last one on Netflix and it wasn't very good. Which one was that? Season four? They did a full season on Netflix just, what, two years ago where they brought everybody back and it wasn't great. So I'm, hmm. I'm a little shocked that they're doing it again because... I didn't even know about that unless that was season four somehow. Yeah, I don't know. Seemed okay to me. 
I watched all four seasons. You watched the one where they were building the colony in the desert and charging people an arm and a leg to go there? Mm-mm. I didn't see that. And they even talk about like where the Mexican wall was going to be? No? No. And Rebel Howard and Ron Howard are both in it? Dude, nope. you, you missed a full season. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, well, I watched it on Amazon Prime, so maybe that's why. Yeah. Yeah. No, the last one was Netflix only. So, uh, but you said it was stupid, so I guess I didn't miss anything. No, he really didn't miss much. Like once oh, again, okay. some ha 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 chuckles, but uh, not a lot. All right, that's our uh, review of what Joe and OG are watching on TV. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you, and as a Marine. You can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.